So it is my honor today to be sat with Natan Sharansky. Natan, you were made a refusenik in the Soviet Union in 1973, a term referring to Jews refused by the Soviets from emigrating to Israel. And later you were arrested, along with other Jews, in the Soviet Union in 1977. You and they were accused of spying for the CIA. You were um, accused of dissident activities. And, uh, of course, your request to leave to Israel was also an important part of that. You sentenced to 13 years hard labor, serving nine, a prisoner of Zion, separated from your wife, on release upon freedom, awarded Presidential Medal of Freedom and Congressional Gold Medal of Honor by the Americans. You've authored several books, including Fear No Evil, that your story in the of your time in the Gulag. And um, once in Israel, you had an impressive political career, not least serving as Deputy Prime Minister under Ariel Sharon. It's an unbelievable life, and it seems to me one which has crossed the nexus between far-left totalitarianism and Russian anti-Semitism. Thank you for speaking with me. And I guess I'd like to ask, start by asking, what made you a threat to the Soviet regime? Well, first of all, it must be under, it's important to understand that any citizen of the Soviet Union who showed any sign of independence in expressing his or her views, in reading the literature which is not permitted, and definitely in deciding whether he or she wants to live in Soviet Union or not, it's already a danger. It's a very rigid regime which uh, has for its own stability, has to have full control over the life and minds of 200 million citizens. And that's why if there are people who openly say that we think differently, we disagree with the authorities, or say we don't want to live in this country, we want to live, these people are the danger. And that happened with the years to become not only activists, but also spokesmen of two movements, uh, Soviet Jewry movement, those who wanted to live for Israel, all to live as Jews, and human rights movement, those who were protesting against the lack of freedom of speech and the other things. So, of course, I was uh, the danger for them. Or they viewed me as a danger. I want to understand the, the web of totalitarianism, how that can descend upon a country. And I think the story of, of your betrayer, if I can call him that, Sanya Lipavsky, who wrote an article uh, in Izvetsia, which was what accused you of being a CIA agent. You wrote in your book that Lipavsky the reason he was an informant for the KGB was because, or at least you think it's because, his father had been arrested for stealing textiles and that if he volunteered for the KGB, he himself would save his father's life. That seems to me to be a perfect example of the web of fear that surrounded the Soviet Union. And of course, this is the time of Brezhnev. Do you think, do you think that that's... Um, a typical story? I would say that phenomenon of informers who were working for KGB uh, 
is much more ordinary. This is, that is very dramatic story that his father was sentenced to death for so-called economical crimes. Uh, and uh, in order to save his father, he agreed to cooperate with KGB. And it was like 20 years before we met. Uh, but uh, in Soviet Union, people were turning into KGB informers for much smaller things. And in fact, everybody knew that there are KGB informers practically everywhere, in, uh, in every school, in every laboratory, in every university. But uh, uh, you have to, to accept that uh, uh, whatever you say, whatever you do, sooner or later will be known uh, to KGB. So though it seemed like very dramatic that just near me was the one who is involved in our movement and then it happens to be uh, KGB informer, uh, but we were always ready that that happens. And to think that I was sent on trial because of his testimony, no, it works in opposite way. When KGB decides that this or another human rights activist or Jewish activist has to be uh, sentenced, then they look who of the informers can be used uh, to build accusation against this person. So, well, of course, KGB arrested me and accused me in high treason because they were scared by the scale of our struggle and uh, because of the reaction all over the world, because of the reaction influence on the other Jews in the Soviet Union. So to frighten the other citizens and at the same time to counterattack uh, the pressure from the free world, uh, they organized a number of show trials. And in my case, they went more far by accusing me in high treason because the Jewish movement was very powerful and solidarity with this movement all over the world, especially in the United States, was very big. So they had to use much stronger weapons, it was all much stronger accusations. That's why in the end I was accused not in anti-Soviet activity as many of my colleagues, but in high treason. What was the Jewish movement then? The Jewish movement, look, uh, it started after Six Day War, so then suddenly- 1967. Many, uh, 1967, when uh, I was one of millions of absolutely assimilated Soviet Jews, because that was the policy of Soviet Union, to disconnect all the citizens from any identity. Religion is opium by definition of Marx, and nationalism is something also very negative because it's against the class struggle, again, by definitions of Marx. And so they were fighting against all types of nationalism and religious beliefs, but especially against Jews because Jews were closely connected to world Jewry and they wanted to disconnect. So I'm the second generation of absolutely assimilated Soviet Jews. We knew nothing, there was nothing Jewish in our life. Uh, no Bar Mitzvah, no Brit Milah, no holidays, no religion, no language and so on. And the only Jewish thing was anti-Semitism, a lot of anti-Semitism. And then uh, when after 1967, after the Six Day War, when so many people around you, those who love, those who hate, but they look at you and say, how you Jews did it? And you want to understand why this connection, why people do this connection? 
and you start reading the underground, in fact, because these books were not permitted, about Jewish history, about Zionist history, about philosophy, about religion. I suddenly understand that if you want, you can have such a great, exciting history. And there are these people who are coming as tourists from all over the world, but say we are family. Uh, and if you decide they are your family, and that there is a state which is interested uh, to help you to fight. And that, uh, so you discover your identity, it gives you strength to start fighting for your rights, then for rights of the other Jews, and then for freedom. You have now enough strength that the life is not the li only survival, but the life is also fight for your freedom and freedom of the other people. So uh, the Jewish movement in my days when I became active was in fact, it were thousands of people who wanted to leave Soviet Union. Hundreds of them were refusing, meaning that they were refused and that is the end of their career and for tens of years, nobody knows how long, it can be 10, it can be 20 years, it can be all their life that they will be uh, without profession, without career, but without opportunity to leave Soviet Union. And then there were hundreds or dozens of, of prisoners of Zion, like me, people who were in fact put in prison for their desire to live as Jews or to live as Jews. Uh, and that's how KGB tried to frighten potentially millions. And as we found out really when Iron Curtain fell, there were two million Jews who wanted to leave. But in order to frighten them, to prevent them from applying, they needed this institution of prisons of Zion and institution of refusing. So you have to know, before you start this process, you have to know that there is chance that you'll go to prison. And if not, there is chance that you'll spend tens of years of your life without career, without permanent work. Uh, so think twice before you apply. And that, that was the way how Soviets were trying to control this Jewish immigration. A total web of fear, it sounds like. Yeah, well, everything in Soviet Union uh, was based on the fear that they felt that they have to control not only physical life of the people, but what's happening in their minds. And that's why they were insisting in all in everyday life of Soviet citizens, they are given many opportunities to demonstrate their loyalty. And uh, though less and less people believed in this ideology, but people had to play uh, as if they are true believers in order to continue their career, uh, secure life, so on. Well, you said earlier, even the KGB were scared. So it seems like everyone in the whole hierarchy yeah, is feared yeah. each well, other. Uh, because there were enough examples that people, the highest walks of society, the moment they uh, demonstrate in any way their disloyalty, their life and freedom are in danger. In a larger context, it seems to me that the plight of the Jew in Russia is as bad or equally as bad as anywhere on earth. Although I guess, of course, one immediately thinks of the Holocaust and, and that atrocious incident, that atrocious time. But at least and in Germany, there were moments in its history, even if they were brief, of enfranchisement for the Jews. In Russia, 
you can go back to the Pale of Settlement with Catherine the Great. Non-stop pogroms. When Alexander II was killed, Alexander III, his son and successor, blamed the Jews for that. That, in fact, is often cited as one of the starting points for the Zionist movement. There's the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And then even under the Soviets, even under the communists, that continued with um, Stalin, although this was stopped because of his death, there was a plan under the doctor's, am I getting this right? The doctor's plot, um, where he had a plan to deport millions of Jews to Siberia. There was the Leningrad trial in 1970, where Jews who were trying to escape um, again were prosecuted. So it seems to me that there's just nonstop attack of Jews in Russia. What do you think is different about Russian anti-Semitism to anti-Semitism in the rest of the world? Well, you know, uh, Russia is a good example of presenting different types of anti-Semitism. So, uh, because there were deep prejudices against Jews, beginning from the very early years of Russian monarchy, uh, they, these prejudices were like in all the Europe, they were the other. And here we are Christian, young Christian country, and here are uh, the enemies of Christ who are trying to make money here. And that's why from the, uh, in the 15th, 16th century, we have a lot of laws or statements against the Jews, why Jews should not be even permitted to come to, to Russia. But then, at the same time, Russian Tsars wanted to broaden the empire all the time. And uh, when Poland was divided between Russia at the time of the Ekaterina the Great and Prussia, Prussia and Austria, so suddenly there are huge Jewish population inside the Russian empire. And so what Russian Tsars do, they immediately make a pale uh, order that Jews cannot move from those places where they live, what means the former Poland, the Western Ukraine, and Western Belarusia, into the uh, into the Russia. So it was the same protective thing from these others, from these non-Christians. Like all over the Europe in those days, the only really big group of people who were different, who were the others, were Jewish. So that was this type of old anti-Semitism, which started as religious anti-Semitism, but then was continued as a national anti-Semitism, okay? the threat to the nation. Uh, but if we'll come to the anti-Semitism of the Marxist-Leninist era, uh, so I would say it's more like the modern left-wing anti-Semitism because, uh, you know, this old traditional prejudice against Jews, that's what today is traditional called the uh, anti-Semitism on the right wing, like, you know, Ku Klux Klan, if you want. Uh, but uh, with this uh, 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 entering of this period of class theory, class struggle, Marxism-Leninism was about dividing the world into oppressors and oppressed, capitalists and proletarians. And uh, oppressors are always wrong. Oppressors are always right. And 
the way to change the world is dictatorship of the proletariat. And if you have to to kill a few hundred of capitalists for the sake of this great progressive idea, it's worth doing. And this regime in the end uh, killed millions and different religions and different nations in different periods were enemies. And yes, in the last years of Stalin, his main target became uh, Jews. And really, uh, when I was five years old, my father told me Stalin died. And it's a great thing for Jews. Remember all your life that miracle happened just at the time of big danger. Uh, but don't say it to anybody. And that's how I started my life of loyal Soviet citizen. I went back to kindergarten. I cried together with all the children about the death of Stalin. And I had no idea how many children are really crying and how many of them are crying like me. That's typical life of Soviet. Even as a five-year-old? Yeah, that's when I started my life of... Did you uh, go into knowing that you would have to pretend to cry that day? Yeah, well, that's what my father told me. So that, that but that's after this, until the day that I became a human rights activist, 20 years of my life was this double, uh, double thing. But uh, coming back to anti-Semitism, so if you look today on the so-called progressive left-wing anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, or anti-Semitism in the form anti-Zionism. It comes from this world view that all the world is divided between oppressed and oppressors, and oppressed are always right, and oppressors are always wrong, and we should not permit freedom of speech for oppressors because it creates discomfortable space uh, for oppressed. And in accordance with this theory, Israel is always oppressed, and Palestinians are always oppressed. And a lot of this progressive anti-Semitism really reminds me the anti-Semitism of the Soviet Union because this ideology of Marxism-Leninism looks to me uh, very much like this neo-Marxist series of today. So the history of Russia is a good example of all types of uh, anti-Semitism, whether it is religious, whether it is national, whether it is against a uh, Jewish state. Uh, we can find all this in uh, the history of Soviet Union. Do you think, given the, your own life, your time in the labor camps, in prison, and the obvious atrocities of what happened on the Soviet regime, Stalin killed at least 20 million, but certainly tens of millions. Robert Conquest, the historian, says that Lenin killed 12 million, and yet, Stalin is still in Russia, the most popular Russian. Every time I've been to Red Square in Moscow, there are queues of people to visit the Lenin mausoleum. And across the West, progressivism and communism is popular. Marxism is popular. What, how is it that rightly we've understood the lessons, or maybe we haven't understood the right lessons, but at least we all acknowledge that the Nazi ideology was evil, but we haven't been able to do that with Marxism, and it's still alive today in the progressive movement. Yeah, well, I have to say that what is happening in the West is much more disappointing and alarming than what's happening in Russia, and I'll explain why. Uh, in Russia, as I said, uh, the anti-Semitism was very deep, deep, and because there was always dictatorship, uh, and dictatorship by definition, needs external enemy because that's the way how uh, dictators keeping 
under control of their own people by mobilizing them permanently for the war against uh, external enemy. And Jews were ideal external enemy. You mentioned uh, the killing of the Russian Tsar and then how the regime used it to blame Jews. Uh, that's typical example of how you want, uh, no, what the leaders of the regime want to keep their own people under control by directing their anger against so-called external enemy. And Jews were always ideal enemy uh, to to unite uh, Christian Russia, to unite Russian nationalists in this struggle. Uh, then, uh, what after the fall of Soviet Union, one would think that this anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, which, which was so typical for Soviet Union, uh, is overcome. And for some years, really, uh, Jews felt themselves much more safe place. But unfortunately, the uh, uh, tradition of civil society is not something that developed in in Russia. And, uh, unfortunately, it happened to be to be a very easy thing to take these freedoms back and what is Putin doing today. He very quickly brought, took all these freedoms back and so, Russia continues to exist without any developed civil society. So anti-Semitism, by the way, is not such a big phenomenon today as it was in Russia, but it starts being used more and more in order to reestablish control over the people. And the less democratic regime is, the more they need anti-Semitism. But that's something that we know from history. and. Uh, uh, what happened with the West was a big, I would say, shock for me, because it was clear to me that, anti first of all, anti-Semitism belongs to, in the modern world, to dictatorships. And second, uh, Europe, after the shock of Holocaust, is so clearly against anti-Semitism, so nothing can uh, really encourage it. Uh, and then, all the so-called progressive theories, you suddenly, you understand on the very early stage, almost 20 years ago, when it started being more and more popular in the universities in America, I said then to Ariel Sharon, where I served in the government, that it seems to me that the most important battlefield against anti-Semitism are American universities. And I wrote an article, uh, traveling to occupied territory, where occupied territory was American universities. It was 20, 20 years ago, in 2003. Why? Because I saw how this, first of all, this neo-Marx theories that I just said, are coming back and becoming popular, that all this idea of justified struggle against colonialism turns into kind of uh, definition, there are oppressed and oppressors and uh, all what comes or struggle against racism, which is such a legitimate struggle, but it becomes that white are always wrong, black are always black, uh, right, and what we need is not the society of equals, but society where there is dictatorship, but not dictatorship of proletariat, dictatorship of oppressed people, of black oppressed people against dictatorship against uh, white, what was absolutely ridiculous. It was very different from Martin Luther King and his pupils. Uh, 
And I was really concerned that the moment these neo-Marxist theories are coming, anti-Semitism is coming together with them. And second thing which I was concerned, I saw suddenly the double thing coming not in Soviet society, but in the West when I heard from uh, 20 years ago, I speaking about student in Harvard. She was postgraduate of business school in Harvard. And she told me that she wanted very much to sign a letter of support to Israel, but she felt that there are three professors in Harvard who will not like it, and her career depends on them. And that's why she decided to wait for a few years. I thought, my God, it's not in Moscow University. It's not in those years that I live in the Soviet Union. It's in business school of Harvard. And I started checking it in different universities, and you see how people are afraid to express their new views, how politically correct such a nice word turns into new type of uh, censorship. And, uh, and that's when I started feeling that neo-Marxism is coming back and bringing new anti-Semitism together with it. Have you been following what's happened to ha at Harvard the last oh, yeah, couple well, of months I, with Claudine not, Gay, not to, unable I, to condemn uh, the genocide? I, I, not, I wrote about it, I think that's like, the highest point of that process, which unfortunately many people were not seeing for years writing that uh, progressivism is not friend of liberal, to the contrary, that's uh, opposite to liberalism. And some people couldn't understand, after all, uh, progressives also want society of justice, of equality, they're against racism. So even if we are different in some uh, emphasis, but after all, we want the same, and it's not, it's absolutely different anti-liberal ideology, and it went to the surface when the first reaction of the most awful, most sadistic pogrom in modern history, not only in this century, but for a few centuries, such type of pogrom, Jewish history is full of pogroms, but you have to go as far as 400 years ago, the times of Bogdan Khmelnytsky, in order to find description of something which can remind you of this pogrom. You were referring uh, to October 7th. Yeah, the October 7th, with all this gang rape and burning people alive and uh, awful things. And so in pogroms of the past, it was all denied. Here, it was, not only it was not denied, it was put on the uh, internet deliberately not to frighten Jews, not to frighten Israelis. And when the first reaction in the free world is the letter of 41 organizations in Harvard who are saying that that is in fact liberation movement. And then when three uh, presidents of the most prestigious universities cannot s give simple answer at this Congress hearings on simple question. What about genocide of Jewish people? Uh, is it prohibited such speech on the campus or not? And not because they are anti-Semites, but because they came from that atmosphere of uh, double standard, of, of uh, uh, connecting Israel and Jews to something anti-progressive. Uh, they couldn't give this simple answer. And I think, they made a very good job for us because for 20 years 
I didn't succeed to explain to people the danger of this phenomenon. Here, three presidents, by not giving the answer, showed how deep it is, this new anti-Semitism. It's not, I guess, being proved right on this particular topic. It doesn't bring you much joy. No, it doesn't. But it's better that people will know the truth. And after this, it is very difficult to hide this truth about anti-Semitism in American universities. It's, it's interesting to see that anti-Semitism is an ideology that does, does, it's not destroyed and that it's emerging from the so-called educated elite. And this was the same thing in Nazi Germany. Germany before the Nazi regime, it had all the best universities in the world. It was the most educated from which the, the Nazi ideology came. And then we're seeing the, again progressivism and the Marxism today. It is coming out of the hyper-educated elites. Absolutely. Look, uh, Marxism, it was, though it was all about liberation of proletariat, working people, I don't uh, see big numbers of working people enthusiastically supporting uh, Marx. It, it all came from academia, from scientists, from the universities, and then it reached uh, this generation of uh, re revolutionaries in Russia who started all this uh, bloodbath and all these awful things under these great slogans. And if you look today on the right-wing anti-Semitism, which is anti-Semitism of national religious hatred of Jewish people, or this left-wing uh, anti-Semitism, which is coming through uh, denial of the Israel-Jewish state as a post-colonial phenomena. I, I say that both of I was dealing with this with all types of anti-Semitism for the last 20 years. And I say that both of them are dangerous, but the anti-Semitism on the left is much more dangerous. They say, why? I say, because they have academia. The right-wing anti-Semitism, which can bring to killing of the people, to attacks on the synagogue, to these uh, demonstrations that the Jews will not replace us, some real Jews haters, but they don't have Academia. They don't they have don't, the institutions. They don't have institutions. They don't have uh, newspapers on their side. And the fact that uh, here the universities or the leading newspapers can express, deny that they are anti-Semites, but in fact express sympathy and support to these views, that's what makes this phenomenon so dangerous. Yeah, wow. You talk about, you've written a famous piece called the three D's, the three D test of anti-Semitism. Demonization, double standards, and delegitimization, which we've sort of touched on a little bit here, but you also wrote about Arab and Islamic anti-Semitism. How does that fit in? Is that, should we see that as far right anti-Semitism or is it a different um, Look, you know what, uh, in the era, if you look to the history, this uh, uh, prejudice against Jews as the other was much deeper in Christian world, much deeper than in Muslim world. Uh, maybe it's because uh, uh, of the beginning of the Christianity, like this uh, confront, uh, all the first Christians were Jews, but this confrontation, the need to separate between the uh, new Jews, Christians, and the old Jews, maybe that's what's brought to the anti-Semitism of the first centuries of Christianity. Uh, 
but in any way, whatever, the, and I'm not a historian, but whatever the reasons, uh, Jews were not persecuted in the early Islam years. And in the countries of Islam, the way how they were persecuted uh, in the Christian world. And it's not accidental that the place when Jews were persecuted in hundreds of thousands in Spain, when they were expelled from Spain, the country where they found safe heaven was Turkey. Uh, so if you are speaking about classical anti-Semitism, I would say in Islam, it, there is enough of it. In Quran, there are about uh, persecuting of Jews, but in general, in the countries of Islam, Jews felt themselves more secure. As to the modern anti-Semitism, uh, no doubt that the Zionism uh, which, uh, was bringing our, us back to our historical end uh, caused a lot of resistance. And I would say the beginning also, it's not because of that they were non-Jewish population, but because it were main dictatorships which needed an enemy, and it's such an ideal enemy. These Jews are coming to our lands, and they want to create non-Muslim uh, state among us. So it was really ideal enemy, and the generations were brought up on this hatred towards Israel and towards Jews. Until this day, they're saying, no, we are not against Jews, we're against Israel. But by this 3D, they're making such a clear double standard towards Israel. They're denying the right of Israel uh, to exist. They compare uh, Israel, you can see, see these films in the Arab countries where Jews are using the blood of the babies for one side. So these blood labels disappeared from Christian world uh, centuries ago. They're coming back big to the Muslim world in the last 50, 60 years. So, uh, uh, no doubt that today it's, it's really strange because uh, uh, Muslim world, unfortunately, is mainly the world of dictators. And Muslim brothers and uh, or, uh, uh, Hamas or Hezbollah, they are as far from democracy as only as black from white. Yeah, But they find uh, the... the allies, bedfellows, the anti-Semitism of the progressive movement. And that's what makes it so powerful in the West, uh, that uh, this uh, connection between ideology uh, of uh, progressive, anti-oppressive uh, movement, uh, which neo-Marxist, in fact, movement, uh, on the left, and uh, the most primitive dictatorships or terrorist dictatorships, which are bringing masses of uh, Muslim fundamentalists, and these together, ideology of the left and masses uh, of the Muslim world, that's what makes this new anti-Semitism so powerful in Europe and the other places. The Israel government here have said that their military aims are to, of course, retrieve the hostages taken by Hamas in Gaza, also to destroy 
Hamas? Can you can the ideology of Hamas actually be destroyed? I don't think that ideology can be destroyed, but political institutions and terrorist institutions, which because uh, is ideology is something which is supporting or fueling the work of the huge terrorist organization, which got a lot of political power, and the result controls, if you speak about other two million people, can use these two million people as living shield, can build, uh, can use all the money which were given for the welfare of these people from inside and from outside to build uh, the uh, city or the empire of terror under the earth, and yes, it has to be destroyed. Uh, whether it will look uh, uh, the victory over Al Qaeda by the West didn't bring to the end of the most primitive Wahhabist uh, fundamentalism, but it deprived it of the power to kill people, and and that's uh, yeah. Well, we have no choice. We had a lot of illusions. And many Israeli leaders had illusion that uh, we can uh, coexist together with these terrorist organizations by giving them uh, stick and carrot, by fighting back when they dare to fight us and by uh, giving them money or whatever uh, uh, other encouragement when they live in peace with us. And I think they didn't, they underestimated the power of this ideology which kills. And uh, of course it was a big failure on Israel's side, the fact that our intelligence and our army didn't notice that such an operation is prepared. Of course our politicians who are playing with this idea of coexistence uh, were wrong, but in the end the message was very clear. We, we cannot continue to exist as a state if we have such an organization on our borders which is ready and which is capable to kill, to rape, to burn alive, and, uh, and to say, declare proudly that we'll continue doing it until there will be one Jew here in our Palestine. So uh, simply not other people will not be afraid to live in Israel. Uh, in order that Jews will, the idea of Israel was that finally Jews will be protected, that there will be no more Holocaust, no more persecutions. And so Israel cannot accept that to continue to exist, that people, Jews of the world will continue to live there if we will not destroy Hamas after, after they already demonstrate clearly their intentions. So uh, whatever it will take, uh, Israel will destroy Hamas. Again, it doesn't mean that this fundamentalist ideology will disappear from this world, but it will not be able to, to kill us. Your book, Fear No Evil, comes, I think it's a very important book in the literary corpus of gulag totalitarianism literature. Another famous one being, of course, the Gulag Archipelago by... Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he wrote in that book, the line between good and evil cuts through the center of every human heart and all human hearts. An important thing to remember when coming or attempting any sort of reconciliation. I wondered about your time 
in your nine years in the Gulag, experiencing some of the the worst prisons, notorious Vladimir prison, Perm 35 labor camp, Lefortovo. What did what were your insights into human nature and into human evil? The prison was not only a good place to to meet the evil and to fight the evil and to to test yourself your forces in fighting the evil. It was also a very good place to appreciate the strengths of the good in the hearts of people. And in fact, uh, I deepened a lot my friendship with some Christians, with some Muslims uh, who were fighting to defend their identity. And you find that exactly like in your life, discovery of your identity and desire to be free gives you two interconnected weapons, desire to be free and desire to belong. Uh, and that protects you from the pressure of KGB. It's also true about the other people, whether it is Pentecostals or Orthodox Christians or Lithuanian priests or Crimea Tatars, people with whom I cooperated. And you find out that the strong, uh, in, in prison you never know who is informer. Well, even when you are out of prison, you never know there, there are millions of people working for KGB. But in prison, you never know who is together with your cell. Is the one whom KGB sent or is the real one? And you find out that the stronger the identity of these people, the more reliable they are. Because exactly as you, because of discovering your identity, have uh, values to fight for, and that's what gives you strength to fight for freedom, it's true also about them. And that's how I discovered many new friends. That's how I, that's how, again, how this connection between belief in freedom and belief in identity is deep. And in the modern world, it's very difficult to, to feel it in daily life. You have in Europe a lot of people who believe that uh, the best way for freedom is to raise identities, like imagine the world as John thing without nationals, without God, where there is nothing oh, to die for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you have, on the other hand, uh, the fundamentalist world in the Middle East, where people believe in identity, but they don't believe in democracy. Well, it's interesting you're mentioning identity there because one of the important tenets of progressive ideology is identity, as you know, the, the uh, identity uh, politics. It's the same word is used for absolutely opposite reasons. When I'm speaking about identities, how individual finds himself belonging to something bigger. And that's what gives him meaning in his life. Identity policy in these progressive ideologies means that everybody is born into being oppressed or oppressor. And uh, that it's like takes away all responsibility from you for what you're doing. Uh, uh, Black lives matter means that white lives don't matter. And if you dare to say, but white lives also matter, you will make a crime against progressivism. In the world that I'm speaking about identity, everybody is responsible to what extent his own identity helps him to understand the other people and uh, to respect the rights of the other people. So, yeah, we are using the same word for absolutely different uh, meaning. So I, when I use the word identity, and I wrote also the book, The Case for Identity, I mean this 
deep desire of people to belong to something bigger than their own life, their own career. So you refer to your Jewish identity there. And I wondered whether, when reading your book, in this, um, you know, lengths of time in isolation, in Siberia, and you you mentioned your Judaism, and also the n- name of the book is Fear No Evil, from the Torah, from the Scripture. How much did your faith help you through that period? Well, uh, when we say faith, we usually mean religion. I have to say, in my case, that's returning to the roots of the identity started from Zionism, because suddenly Israel came to our life, and everybody says that you're connected. And then, uh, studying you, it's history, and then it's culture, and then it's holidays, and then it's tradition. And the mystical power of religion came to me on the late stage, in, in prison, where you really feel yourself connected to the people with whom you are not in connection, but you feel yourself part of this historic struggle, whether you are isolated or not. Uh, and when really, at the, you mentioned the title, it's from Psalms, from the 23rd Psalm, my wife sent to me this Psalm book a few days before my arrest. And she said, "Some I have a feeling that the time has came to send it to you. And I opened the book, and I don't understand more than half of the words. And if you didn't learn how to read this ancient religious Hebrew text, you cannot understand where it is the beginning and the end of the sentence. And then I decided, no, I don't have now time for this. I am in the struggle, in the demonstration, and so on. A few days after this, I am arrested. And then I remember about this note of my wife, and I start fighting that they'll give it to me. And they gave it to me only three after three years of my fight, together with the telegram that my father passed away. And I decide what I can do in prison. I, I will read these psalms until I understand them in the memory of my father. And there is an ocean of words and sentences, and you don't know where is the end of the, the beginning. You don't know, you don't understand most of the words. And I, as a mathematician, started simply taking one word and looking in every combination where it meets in order to understand connection. And so it happened that from all this ocean of words, the first phrase which I understood clearly from the beginning to that, that is the phrase. It was gum killer, and when you'll go through the shadow of Death, you'll fear no evil because I, God, am with you. And you, it cannot, look, I, I know the theory of probability. It could not be by chance, simply that from all this ocean of words, all, that is the phrase which you are getting first. And you understand, who is this? You, I am with you. Is this your wife who sent it to you? King David who wrote you? Kadosh Baruch, the God who says it to you? Uh, it's all of them together. And, uh, and that's when I would say that was my first religious experience. So, yeah, no doubt that uh, religious uh, religious beliefs help to stand against the evil. Uh, but uh, religious beliefs can be expressed in different ways. It, it doesn't have to be only... Uh, strictly religious tradition. This feeling of belonging can come to you from different sides. There's a famous rabbi who talked about 
the Holocaust, uh, the Holocaust um, in conversation with a famous atheist. I've forgotten the names, but the atheist said, how can there be a God look at the Holocaust? The rabbi responded and said, those who were in the camps testify to God's existence. They were closer to God than anyone. How dare you tell them that there was not a God? I wondered whether in your experience, your nine years in the camps, whether you felt close to God. Well, yeah, as, as I just told you, my first experience, direct conversation, if you want, direct dialogue with God was prison. In fact, it's like local call there. When you, uh, because you don't know how long you will live and you understand that if that is your aim to survive, then you're lost. The KGB will... They, they, from the very first day, they explain you that your life and your uh, or your death is in your hands, or you cooperate with us or not. And you understand that they want simply to take away your freedom. So you have to understand that your aim is not survival. Your aim is how to remain a free person. And then that's exactly uh, the way to feel yourself part of this huge struggle of people who want to live in freedom. And uh, you are alone and you're connected to all the world. Uh, they say that you're alone, but in your mind, you're not alone. And that becomes almost mystical, spiritual experience. And uh, yeah, that's how you are coming to uh, dialogues with God. I want to ask you what might be a difficult question, but it's, it's something that struck me when reading your book. The character... Sanya Lipavsky, who I've already asked you about. If I don't know, obviously, but if I had been in your position, I would have found it difficult to forgive him. He, it was because of his accusations that you ended up in labor camp, torn from your wife for nine years. Can you forgive him? You know, uh, he's not important. You, you, uh, I always knew that it's not because of Sanya Lipovsky that I'm in prison. It's because of Soviet regime wants full control of the people because they dare to speak. Uh, so uh, Sanya Lipovsky is a small tool. It's like Stalin was proudly saying that our citizens are cogs in this big mechanism. So really, it's small cog in this mechanism of KGB which they use him. So uh, I, I feel pity to him. By the way, there is continuation of this story that after Soviet Union fell apart and I am in Israel for a few years already, and then I get a call from my friend. And he said, you know, Sonny Lipovsky now came back from the oblivion. He's writing memoirs and he asked if you want to help him to publish it. I said, why should I help him? He said, because he's speaking there about the truth that you were not uh, spy that you, that it's KGB which forced him. I said uh, I'm not going to help him. It's his problem. Uh, I, uh, uh, I I I know the truth. Uh, I don't need his testimony about it. So then he uh, made gave was an interview to some Israeli newspaper showing that I'm a good man. As well. I didn't react to this. It doesn't matter. Uh, it seems sounds like he's looking for atonement. He was, he was, yeah, he was looking, look, uh, no, if uh, uh, I accepted that there are uh, many Soviet citizens who are making awful things because of fear of KGB, 
And uh, we have to accept that many of them that became uh, very positive citizens of the free world. Uh, I don't know about his fate. He appeared for a few months and then disappeared. Uh, but no, of course, if he really re is repenting, if he wants to, I wouldn't resist to his uh, joining free society. I don't know whether he really tried to do it. Simply, he wanted to to make some money uh, when Soviet Union uh, fell and KGB doesn't pay him anymore. So now he tries to make some money from members. I don't know. I never saw him again. Uh, but they say people, it will be a big mistake to think that these uh, people like Sanya Lipovsky are big villains. They are very small victims of the Soviet regime. The villain is the regime itself. That's interesting. So in, in a way, because I would have interpreted that he had some responsibility. We all have some responsibility, you know, to the truth in small ways. Like a regime like the Soviet regime is one that it's it's a thousand lies. It's a million lies. And if you participate in the lie, as Solzhenitsyn famously argued against doing, live not by lies, you are, in a way, a small part playing the villain. Yeah, look, no, no doubt uh, uh, that everybody who... Play, look, uh, in my book, The Case of Democracy, I divide all the people under dictatorship under three categories, is true believers, dissidents, and double thinkers. And overwhelming majority are double thinkers. They don't believe in this regime, but they are playing by rules. And yes, and each of them is uh, helping with this to the regime. Uh, and the appeal of Solzhenitsyn not to live by lie, or the same type of appeal of Andrei Sakharov, who was also like my mentor in all this. Uh, they're very appealing, but very, very few people. Very, it's a tiny, tiny minority. Like, let's say tens of thousands among hundreds of millions of people, we are ready to live like this. We are ready. So uh, I am not in the position to blame everybody except those 10,000 or 20,000 people who cross this line between double think and dissent that all the others are evil. All the others are victims. And uh, thank God, the majority of them are becoming active part of free society when they have this opportunity. A more positive side of the story was your amazing relationship with your wife already on this trip here to Israel. I've been here a few days. I've met women named after your wife, Avital Sharansky, who was campaigning for your freedom. This is a Hollywood movie love relationship. It's incredible. Uh, how much do you credit her and, and for your freedom? Everything. Uh, look, uh, Avital, when we met in Soviet Union, her name was Natasha. And uh, when I took her to the airport, hoping that we'll meet in a few months, we met 12 years later. And it was one day after our chupa. Uh, she was a very shy girl who spoke few words in Hebrew and no English. When I met her 12 years later, she was already leading the demonstrations of hundreds of thousands, and she made Reagan and Tetch and Mitterrand to serve in her board of the, of the struggle. Uh, 
they all were speaking later when I met them with such a big admiration. And still she was a very shy woman, by the way, who is, was absolutely against all the attempts of Hollywood and others to make a film from our story. Yeah, I, I saw that it's good for the struggle, but she said, no, don't, I don't want that our life will turn into the Hollywood story, I don't want. And they were stupid enough to write an article, The Love Story of the Century. That was the best way to convince you not to touch you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but uh, what I want to say that when she chose the name here, she didn't like to be Natasha because it is the root of, in Hebrew, it's, uh, it's like abandoned. Not really, well, nobody thought about it, but she started feeling the, and she chose the name simply from looking into the Bible. Uh, she liked the name Avital, which was a very unusual name then in Israel. Today, there I meet all over the world, especially women who are in their 30s, that they are called Avital because of uh, this. So she really, her devotion, her faith, her stubbornness, and the fact how she was telling to all the audience, by the way, that uh, the moment my husband will be released and the other prisoners of Zion, Soviet Union will fall apart, fall apart. And uh, people, friends of say how they looked at her as a crazy, well, poor woman, she maybe will never see her husband, and that's why she believes in it. But she happened to know exactly what will happened with the world, and, uh, and yeah, and uh, she she was absolutely right in everything what she's doing, she's right, but she has some deep instincts. And uh, in addition, of course, uh, uh, our love story <laughs> uh, helps me a lot when they were trying to say to me in, in KGB that you're alone, that all the world is afraid to mention your name, you're abandoned, I was, I simply knew that my wife will never stop. And if my wife will not stop, all my friends will not stop. And all the world will not stop. That was like the point of stability and uh, uh, believe that uh, we will succeed. How often were you hearing, when you were in the nine years in prison, how often were you hearing from her? Well, uh, under the law, Every half a year, I have the right to have a meeting with my relatives, but because of bad behavior, I had twice this meeting in nine years. And uh, not, of course, with Italian, nobody will permit her to come from Israel to Soviet Union, but with my mother and my brother who were coming from Moscow. So in these two personal meetings, of course, I heard a lot about Italian's activity. Now, uh, but it's only two meetings in nine years. Also, direct letters from Avital never came to me. No, no. She wrote, as she told me later, twice a week. This night. I received two letters in nine years from her directly. But I did receive some of the letters from my mother, who were not, which were not confiscated. And from there, bits here, there, I could understand. But the most powerful message came from the Soviet press. Because once, if you are not in a punishing cell, you can read official newspaper, Pravda. Always yes, it depends. And once they probably didn't check and gave me the newspaper where there was a big article about awful behavior 
of uh, the leaders of the free world, and specifically Reagan, who personally met the wife of the one adventurist who pretends to be the wife of Soviet spy, or American spy in Soviet Union, Sharansky. That's how I found out that she met with Reagan and not from letters and not from the meetings, which I didn't have, but from Soviet newspaper. So, and of course, it was a very angry article, but uh, I was very proud of my wife, and it was the best proof that uh, she reaches practically everybody in this world in her struggle. An angry article in the Pravda is a badge of honor. Yeah, it's, it's the best <laughs> uh, guarantee that the struggle continues. Yeah. Fantastic. What did it feel like coming to Israel, uh, finally? After all of that, first of all, it was uh, very dramatic because, uh, like, uh, you in the morning you are in KGB prison, and then they change all your clothes to the civil one, and they take you to the uh, airplane, a huge airplane. You and four KGB men in the airplane of for two hundred passengers, you know, and by by sun you see that you are flying to the west, and even Soviet Union has borders. And then your demand say, what, you kidnapped me? What it means? And then they tell you that my bad behavior, I'm deprived of Soviet citizenship and exiled. And then we land in Berlin, in Eastern Berlin, and the American ambassador takes me through Glinke Bridge to Western Berlin. And then my wife with small airplane from Israel taking me to Ben Gurion Airport. And then the door of the airplane opens and she says, that's our... Prime Minister Shimon Peres, and that's our Foreign Minister uh, Itzhak Shamir, and that's our Chief Rabbis, and so on. And then we go to, to the quarter, so and we celebrate with all the people. So the day which started KGB in hell finishes in the paradise. So it's very dramatic ascendance. You go straight up, and when you are the skies, you can only go down. So now it's already 38 years that I go down, down, and I'm still in paradise. That's how I feel. So, I, of course, very challenging paradise with a lot of problems, with a lot of uh, repair. Uh, you need to repair many things, but yeah, I feel that we live in paradise. And you've dedicated your life since to maintaining paradise. You've committed to serving the people of Israel. You've served them in government. You continue now after the October seventh and during this Israel Hamas war, you 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 continue to to serve them and and you you seem to be a loyal a loyal servant of your country. Well, uh, there are many heads in which you have to serve to uh, in this war. One of this is that uh, we your grandfather Miluim, Miluim meaning that you are mobilized. Why? Because five of our eight grandchildren now live with us because their father is in the war. And uh, so it, now it's a very challenging life. You, uh, from four in the morning when the baby is crying to, to the evening, uh, we, we are now, we are reminded that the grandfather and grandfather sometimes have to become parents. Uh, that's one aspect. The other, of course, with this, very unique situation when suddenly we were the most polarized society and became the most united society for the first time. Left and right are not used as a four-letter word against one another when there is no hatred towards ultra-Orthodox and no disgust towards non-religious because everybody is united. And 
you work to make sure that this feeling, this newly discovered feeling because of this tragedy will not be lost. And the most important, of course, this, this tragedy is viewed by so many forces as the step in the liberation movement. And that's the moment when the face of our enemies, not only among the uh, Jew haters on the right, but uh, Jew haters in all striped societies becoming so clear, and we have to make sure that uh, the liberal world in which we believe will not be there. And yeah, that's a lot of work. It's astonishing seeing this country so united, particularly about considering the state of Israel just before the war. We've been to, uh, we came to Tel Aviv, we went down to the Gaza envelope, over to Modin, and now we're speaking in Jerusalem, having dinner with all sorts of people across the political spectrum. Everyone is united and completely focused on the war effort. It's, a, it's been astonishing that 130% of people uh, of the uh, con uh, military, uh, the, 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 I'll get this, Maybe uh, wrong. Yeah, well, uh, there was in the, immediately in the first hours there was mobilization, the biggest and the quickest mobilization in the history. Three hundred thousand people were mobilized. Three hundred eighty thousand came to uh, to to be mobilized. Uh, the Israelis from all over the world who were on tour. They've been coming. The back. Israelis love to to travel all over the world. They were rushing back, and there was a lot of difficulties with the tickets because many companies canceled their flights. And I know so many young people who made unbelievable effort to come and to go and to, bomb, to be mobilized. It's been astonishing to see because in London, where we're from, there is chaos on the streets. Every single weekend, there are different protests from both sides, and it's it's turmoil that we have not got a, a cohesive society at all. It's it's ripped up the, the the dividing lines between us. Whereas I come here, which in my head was the front line, this is the this is the focus of it all, and it, it's complete unity. It's it's really astonishing. You know, well, uh, it really was very upsetting. The last year, the the world before this sixth of October was the world of disunity in Israel. And there was like big demonstrations. Half of the country believed that the other half tries to steal democracy. And this half of the country believed that this tries to steal their Judaism. And we are Jewish democratic state. So when half of the country feels that they don't like democracy and half that they don't like to be Jewish, it's like they was, always they was. But it was all on the surface. In fact, one day, on, after the 7th of October, it was already absolutely different country. What proves that, in fact, this deep feeling of uh, united journey through the centuries as one people, as people who, yes, want to be true to their religion, but also want to be true to their freedom. That is, this connection is much deeper than our debates. We Jews are very good in debating and denying and uh, being revolutionaries and going against the uh, flood. But in the end, yeah, we are, uh, uh, all feel them ourselves part of this uh, unique 
much of the people through history, and we want to be part of it. At the moment, it is feeling that there is threat to our capability to go together. Everybody is mobilized, and uh, it was it is a huge tragedy. I think, like post-trauma, will be felt through centuries, maybe. It's definitely not uh, through all our generation, but not only. It will be much longer because uh, this feeling, the Zionist feeling that finally we have a state and now the, the world will be very different because uh, we will be protected by the state. And suddenly such an awful pogrom entered the state and uh, uh, this awful tragedy with our children, with our grandchildren, uh, in an unbelievable sadistic way happened. It, it's huge trauma. But it also brings back people to the, to the history, and, uh, and they fight as one family, and they are one family. What do you think makes October 7th different for Israelis than the many pogroms and wars of the last hundred years. Uh, on one hand, it is different in its size and depth. You know, Kishinev pogrom, famous pogrom, which brought a lot of, uh, made a lot of people to leave uh, Russia. Uh, poem was written by the most famous writer, Bialik, and it influenced a lot on the perception of this world. In Kishinev pogrom, 50 people were killed. Well, probably there were hundreds who were raped and uh, whose houses were destroyed. Here, 1,200 people killed in the most sadistic uh, ways. But that's in terms of quantity. But as to quality, that was a world without Israel. And we believed and believe that the world, all the hundreds of years of persecution now changed because the Jews, we were dispersed. There was no force which was protected. They were the other in every place. And now there is the state of Israel which takes responsibility for the future of Jewish people, for the security of Jewish people, definitely those who live in Israel, but not only those in Israel. That's how we lived and that's how we acted. And suddenly we are reminded in the most tragic way that we should not take our existence for granted. We should not take the state of Israel for granted. We have to fight for this. By the way, my daughter, one of my daughters, she's like a philosopher, writer, and she was asking this question from herself and from the generation, that what can we do in this life when our uh, fathers and mothers didn't leave us anything? They did already everything. They, uh, they built state, they protected, because what kind of what can bring us the same level of uh, excitement and self-devotion? Suddenly, suddenly we see that. And first of all, we see how this young generation is at least as idealistic and self-sacrificing as we were. And second, that we should not take anything for granted. Uh, that we have to fight for this again and again in our generation of this. State of Israel. So that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And is it too soon to look beyond this current Israel Hamas war to the future of Israel? What you've just said indicates that that the younger generations will understand 
the fight and understand the existential position of Jews uh, and on Israel. On one hand, existential threat and need to fight. On the other hand, they understand the power of unity. They were, like all of us, involved in this life of uh, polarization. And now that they are fighting in one tank, in one unit, when they're protecting one another, and I do hope that already in the next elections, there will be new parties and new, and in the old parties, there will be new blood from this young generation of fighters. I do hope that it will have a very positive influence also on our political world, which of course is, is in every country, the most conservative part is political world. Do you think it will turn more conservative? No, to the contrary. I think it will be more open, as I said, until now, uh, when uh, our people on the right, including our prime minister, when they spoke about left, it was like a curse. When people on the left were speaking about the right, it was like about some kind of sect. Which uh, So there was a lot of uh, un uh, polarization, a lot of unaccepting. When uh, ultra-Orthodox were enemies in the, in the eyes of many people. They are not like us, they don't serve in the army, they this and this. On the other hand, in the religious world, secular, you're not Jewish, you're, you're abandoning. It's all changed. That, uh, and that's very important, that you accept uh, all parts of Jewish society and all parts of Israel, including non-Jews. You accept it. Part of Sifaz, of mosaic, and that's something very important. I, I do hope that new generation of political leaders will be much more inclusive, and it will be much easier to build the broad unity government than it was yesterday. On that positive note, I have to say, Mr. Sharansky, it's been a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for watching The Winston Marshall Show. If you enjoyed that episode, well, I encourage you to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on all podcast outlets if you want just the audio. And, of course, on winstonmarshall.co.uk. Thanks for listening.